the second edition of the now rechristened new series of episodes within the Let Me Tell You Something oeuvre. It's Silver Screen Vision, where we talk about a film or a TV show that is in some way about or in parallel with or related to, in some way or another, professional wrestling. I'm your co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and with me as always is the Lana Wachowski to my Lily Wachowski, Simon Cross. Simon, how are you doing today, mate? I'm doing good. I'm doing a lot better than um, the economies in like northern towns in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Well, we're about to discuss a film that's every bit as random and ill-thought-out and poorly focused and paced as our own podcasts, as we discuss... The recent, relatively recent release, but fairly far in the past, ideological wise, <laughs> film that is the true author vision of one Dan Caden is Walk Like a Panther. Growl. Nothing meant more than being in the ring with the Panthers. My wrestling family. In the 1980s, we pulled in audiences of millions. Now we're pulling pints. And I wouldn't change a thing. Shame, really, that this is to be my final pint in here. What are you talking about? We're going to close the Arf Nelson. We can't be serious. Yeah, tosser. If that pub goes, we're left with nothing. So we do the greatest show of our lives. It's not going to be easy. We're trying to turn the clock back nearly 30 bleeding years. You look ridiculous. They call me the sexy C3PO. Mr. Ziggy Barrel. What's Ziggy short for? What you short for, you territorial dancer. <laughs> the Panthers, you shall all be warriors once more. All right, I suppose so. <laughs> You lot of viral. Not me, mate. I'm clean as a whistle. <laughs> I've seen pensions run better than this. Well, few of them are. Now you've got the chance to make this a fight that will never be forgotten. She's back. Yeah. This is our moment. Watch and learn. Are they swollen? I don't think they're swollen, Cliff. Oh! They're still very little. They're... Hey, keep wafting. Keep wafting, Teddy. Oh, I've got my side back anyway. That's a bonus. It's time to walk like the Panthers that you are. I bloody love wrestling. You ready for this? <laughs> I love you, son. Hey? So this is a film that came out in the year 2018, but it is a film that has been long gestating in this man's career, I suppose. It seems like Dan Caden got involved in the film and TV world specifically to make this thing, <laughs> and he finally managed to do so. So this was a film that I saw a couple of years ago when it was released at the cinemas. I remember that Stephen Graham actually attended an NXT UK event, I think it was. Did he now? And, uh, yeah, and got interviewed for... It's the- good that someone did. Yeah, he got interviewed for WWE's YouTube channel and gave a little chat about how much he was enjoying the show. I think he was hanging out with British Strong Style at the time. 
Oh, well, and yeah. you'd, you'd thought he would have been uh, more, more more at home with um, Zach Gibson. <laughs> Liverpool's number one. Soon to be recognised as the world's number one. Did you know he, he once did a, like a, a street fight where he produced and hit a wrestler over the head with a car radio? <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> but this is, I'll tell you what, though. This is a film... I, I sent a text to you whilst I was watching, because I re-watched it for this podcast. We both watched it tonight before this recording. And I said to you, for the second time in a row, I'm constantly willing this film to suddenly become good, which it never achieves. Are you of that general sense with me of that this is a film that had potential, had a lot of love and passion behind it, but ultimately is left wanting? This film reminds me a little bit of Red Dead Redemption 2, and I'll tell you for why. Well, you'll have to tell me through some good explanation, because I've never played either of the Red Dead Redemptions, nor a computer game in, like, the past 20 years. (laughs) So you're going to have to give me the 20-year history of pro wrestling. I think that's basically the... In like... the usual amount of time I allocate you to talk in these episodes. <laughs> well, you've run out of time now, so you're going to have to... Right. <laughs> yes, so Red Dead Redemption 2, you can tell the stuff they had to cut out, uh, especially towards the last latter half of the game. A lot of stuff got left on the cutting room floor, and you can kind of see allusions to it. Be it the protagonists, Arthur Morgan's interactions with the lady in the cabin, the Civil War veteran, things of that nature. You can just tell they wanted to have all of that stuff, but they had to just like leave it behind. I got that impression with this film. There's a lot of stuff they scatter out in the special, especially in the first like half an hour. And then I think they forgot half of it and sort of like, very neatly tried to tie it all up together at the end, but you're just like, well, how was how have we got from one stage to the other kind of thing? A, a bit that really bothered me is the Chavi antagonist, Ricky. Mm. He he flips on a dime. Yeah. An absolute dime. <laughs> yeah. It's like worse than the big show. <laughs> well, no, because he only did it once. <laughs> yeah. I think we should probably give a quick breakdown as to what the film actually is so that people would understand, especially I imagine our... I'm not even sure if our American listeners could get their hands on it outside of maybe just everything being on Amazon Prime. But how would you summarise the film? I guess it's it's a get-the-band-back-together movie, essentially, except the band never lost touch with each other. Yeah. <laughs> it seems that there was a very popular... I don't know, would they have been a faction within the British wrestling scene? It seems like they would have been. In the late 70s, early 80s. But a, a, a faction like New Japan factions. Yeah, yeah. Like a, a loose affiliation kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, they were called the Panthers. And yeah. then when British wrestling went off the airwaves and it all died out to the American competitors, they left that world behind, but all still lived in this little town in West Yorkshire where essentially the leader of the group ran the local pub, and they all had their own little businesses around the place. 
leader or like kind of like second in command it what was the structure there we yes the inciting incident of the film i suppose is the what what was it called the ginger frost or the ginger storm uh ginger frost the ginger frost who was maybe the best of all of the wrestlers dies of a heart attack played by jason fleming in this film dies of a heart attack right at the start of the film and that brings everyone together and then it becomes one of those we've got to save the recreation center well it's like it's it's 15 different ideas all crammed together into one thing isn't it because it because it doesn't first because the old promoter turns up i thought immediately he was going to be the main antagonist Mm -hmm. Uh, and i thought that's the stall they were setting out but again like it that just like drops yeah they, they set up three different antagonists. Yeah. And then just drop two of them, like, yeah. at the first sign of trouble. Well, I think that what this should have always been, and what I think they wanted it to be, or it was going to be, at, at least at one point, was essentially a sitcom or maybe a comedy drama series. Mm. Because they did film what seems to be a pilot. If you look at the guy's credits... There is another Walk Like a Panther circa 2011 that's listed down, and it's one episode. So obviously they must have shot a pilot either for a broadcast channel like Channel 4 or BBC. It seems kind of Channel 4-y. Oh, yeah, look, it's very Channel 4. And that fell through, and so he took the ideas and pulled it together and turned it into a film. I mean, you've got to admire the guy's drive and passion for this oh yeah this has obviously been something he's wanted to do he must have been a childhood fan of wrestling i looked it up his his year of birth was 1975 so he would have grown up around the big daddy giant haystack kendo nagasaki era yeah and that would have been his idea of wrestling and i suppose then when he turns teenager he loses what his idea of wrestling is and the american thing maybe doesn't appeal to him and he always wants to go back to it (laughs) that namby pamby stuff that namby pamby fake stuff which we'll get to I think the basic problem is that there are, like I said, there's a sitcom's worth of ideas in this. And it's funny, actually, you say there are three, like two or three antagonists in the film. You could almost see it as, because you've got the promoter, the original promoter, who's almost more like an end-of-the-peer promoter. He's like, like the British equivalent of Woody Allen in Broadway, Danny Rose. You know, we'll have a ventriloquist act. And a, and a, are you saying that because of the glasses partly as well? No, 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 no. It's just, it's a very particular character that, Woody Allen plays in Broadway Danny Rose as like this agent of like the lamest acts working around New York essentially right so you could have had him as sort of the antagonist of the first series and then you could have had the evil wrestler that comes along to join them uh, the Bob Dylan apparently that's the code word for villain oh see I hadn't thought about him yeah as an antagonist oh, wait, so who were the other antagonists because obviously the brewery owners the, the other or the brewery manager yeah. Is the other antagonist played by Steve Tomlinson? Well, I thought it was going to be this the the Chav character, Ricky. But... Yes, that's true. Actually, yes, I suppose he's more like a little menace, like a recurring character. But yeah, essentially, there's like two different films that are going on in this film, and half the casting they're in one, half the casting they're in something else. Mm. Half of the cast, like Dave Johns, Stephen Graham, uh, Jason Fleming. A few of the others. I think they think they're in like a full Monty film. Working class, dramatic film with comedy, but still rooted in a reality in their performances. Yeah. And I think the other half of the cast think that they're in the sitcom. 
which is like a Phoenix Knights-esque Sergeant Bilko, Dad's Army, ragtag bunch of eccentrics getting into a variety of scrapes and all of them having their own eccentricities that then get their own little thing and then they all come together and do little scenes together. Yeah, so for me, that's... Oh, I can't remember his... I, you're going to help me out. I have to help me out with names. But there's Jill Halfpenny, yeah. who's in this. She's that. Mm. And the guy who plays Jeff in Peep Show. Neil Fitzmorris. He's also in Phoenix Nights, and that's probably what made me think along those lines. Yeah. Because he's Ray Vaughn in, in uh, Phoenix Nights. I think he's got Guz Khan and who's the... Scroobius Pip. Thank you. Yeah, he's got that comic relief as well. There must be at least 30 named characters in this film that they try to give internal narratives of some description or another. Do you think it's like... I'm going to use another video game analogy here. Like, when you start... Just because I've been playing a lot of it because the new one's out. It's like a football manager. When you want to get, like, like big names into a club, so you all promise them, like, star player or important player roles. But there's only 11 players you can pick at a time. I think it's not being able to see the wood for the trees and trying to cram every idea you've had about this one dream project in your head and not having... It's funny because you say it feels like everything's kind of cut to ribbons, but I don't think it's cut to ribbons enough. I think the problem is maybe they didn't cut enough in the script stage and then they filmed so much of it and realised what they should have done was realised we've written a script that's going to go for two and a half hours here. Let's rewrite it to a one and 40 minute hour script yeah. and then edit that down into a coherent 90 minute film. When I say cut, maybe jump's a better word. But I just mm. feel with a lot of the, like, the subplots, we go from A to C. Yeah. And we don't even brush past B. It's not like yeah. we're on the bypass between mm. the Bedworth bypass and we go r- right next to Bedworth. You've gone for some weird analogies today. I, I don't know why. I just had that in my head. Just could... recent experiences. Look, Simon, you've got to think beyond it. If I was just doing analogies based on recent experiences, everything would be related to eating pizzas and wanking. So we've got to, <laughs> you know... Hey, hey, you go to Derby sometimes. <laughs> yeah, what do you think I do in Derby? Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say there's some top quality pizzas and there's some mm. top quality wankers, but that that would be unkind. Derby coming out for their game. Wait a minute, we were wearing our away tops for this, weren't we? Ah, oh. <laughs> that's that's niche. Ah, <laughs> oh. um, yeah. To, to to sort of like awkwardly jam a segue in here, it's a very British film, isn't it? Yes. Well, it's, yeah. it's meant to be about... Well, I think... One thing I'd forgotten about the first time, and I thought... It, it, well, we could go into a whole deep dive into this, which is something I actually addressed in my book, the chapter about British wrestling. Did you notice how the it was described like this time and place? Yes. You get Britain, then 1980s added, and then slammed right into it is Great Britain, yeah. 1980. It is essentially in that one moment. Britain's gone to the dogs. <laughs> that is the overriding theme of this film, it seems. And it's funny because essentially if you look at my the chapter I wrote about British wrestling and the and the people that it appealed to and the way that it was shoved off the air in the late eighties. Yeah. There's parts of it that you kind of could say I was sort of pointing out towards trends that were predicting Brexit. 
I know that's going to sound strange. But we essentially now have this thing in this country where it feels like this village will be part of a constituency that was part of the Red Wall in 2019. At its heart is an old school, the village, the good old people of this town attitude. Yeah. That is ultimately anti-corporate, anti-big business, but is also frankly maybe kind of backwards looking and traditionalist although i will applaud this film it is very multicultural uh, it, it has a transgender character in it and it's not seen as a big deal to anyone in the film but there is still that kind of i feel like this is a town that would have voted for brexit because they don't want to be told what to be told by brussels and that idea of big giant entities that is that now modern-day, old-school Labour suddenly loan their votes to the Conservatives for the first time in 2019 after going to UKIP yeah. sort of attitude to this. Because ultimately, the villains in this film are a big corporate greedy bastard. Yeah. Although even then, the corporate greedy bastard is overrun by another person <laughs> on the corporate ladder who's not as greedy as that corporate greedy bastard. But you get where I'm coming from. There's I mean... like an old 870s... 80s Labour, well, not the not the Benite version of Labour, but you know what I mean. I, I know, I know what you're saying. I, I, uh, I would say, I don't want to say backwards looking. What I would say instead is rose tinted glasses when look, look looking at the yeah. past. I like, I, I, it makes in this film. It in this film it makes sense because it's their glory days. Mm. But reflecting on what it's showing to be in general, like going on that broad spectrum of it wasn't Britain great back then. Wasn't like the past great. And the past is great in certain lights, but there has to be an element of evolution kind of thing. And I don't want to go into like a whole, that's how I think a proportion of uh, Britain feel in general is that they overvalue the past. But I think, I think in terms of wrestling, that's why British wrestling even though it's had a thriving independent scene, that's why I think it's never. When Wildersport came back, they wanted it to be what they remembered so badly, and try and like make it like just give it a new gloss of paint rather than make it a new modern thing. And I think this film shows that the public at largest perception of wrestling in this country is going to be frozen in time. Mm. Even for like another like amongst like the general people, like not like the actual like hardcore wrestling fans, but amongst the general people, British wrestling is going to remain frozen for another fifteen twenty years. Just how they perceive it, world of sport seems to have frozen into people's heads like what British wrestling will be, and I think it's going to take another like fifteen twenty years for 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 like the general public perception in this country to be shifted enough. I don't think the general public will have a perception of British wrestling. I don't think British wrestling will ever be mainstream enough. We had our crack at it again. Around this time, actually. Was WOS Wrestling in 2018 or was it 2019? I think it would be 2018. Because it was when I went on holiday. And the last time I went on holiday, I think, was 2018. Yeah, yeah. It was winter. It'd be winter 2018. Summer 2018. God, was it summer? Yeah, yeah. Summer, like it was... June to September-ish time, because when I watched the buzzer battle, I was in Inverness. Oh. So that would have been September. Righto. That make that makes more sense, I guess, mm. because, you know, 
Christmas the winter is already miserable enough without watching the, the latest iteration of World of Sport. But do you get what I mean about the tone of the performances being of two very different measures? The performance that Dave Johns is giving is almost of the same pitch and sincerity as the one he gave in I, Daniel Blake only a couple of years earlier. Yeah. Whereas Stephen Tomlinson is almost pantomime level. The way he's playing that villain, enjoying every single word he says. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, he... Oh, oh yes, he is! <laughs> and that's fundamentally the, the, the error that the director's making. I've, the more I've come to realise over time, and I've said this a few times in my 21st Film podcast, one of the key things that a director has to do during the filming period, more than anything, is keep a consistent tone. Yeah. And he needs to either tell Dave Johns to lighten up, or he needs to tell Stephen Tomlinson to tone it down a little. To stop hamming it up. And he hasn't done enough for either of them. Yeah. And it's just, there's no clear narrative thread of an emotional journey. It's all little valleys along the way. Again, I feel like moving more towards a sitcom uh, setup. Because it feels like, say when they're given their drill instruction scene with the Scottish person. Yeah. It was in once You could have literally lifted that scene out of the film and it wouldn't have made a blind bit of difference. Like, what is the point? There's a, there's a couple of bits, again, more in the earlier half of the film, where it's really quite emotional. And it's because it's got two great actors in it, well, two very good actors in it, Stephen Graham and... I would say great actors. Yeah. I was, well, I would say that Stephen Graham's a great actor. I'm not sure Dave Johns is versatile enough in the way that Graham yeah. is. But for the area that he is, like in Die Daniel Blake, he's fantastic. And there's the scene that sticks out to me where uh, Dave Johns' character speaks to Ginger in the ring after he like clears off the use defacing the, the old gym. That's quite a touching scene. But then you've got, like, the weird golden-cheeked love triangle. Yes. Golden lovers are, you know, interwoven into different wrestling laws throughout the world, it seems. Mm. Mm. And it also, that's one thing that really bothered me as well, because there's no way Jill Halfpenny was old enough to have been a significant part of the British wrestling scene in 1980. Yeah. The age ranges of these characters does not match up to... Who would be a professional wrestler? I mean, I guess they're meant to be down the younger end of it in 1980, so you could argue that they're sort of meant to be Robbie Brookside age, maybe at a stretch. Yeah. But even then, like Jill Halfpenny in particular is way too young to be that. It's weird because like they give her like, oh, she had like a pop song which she sings, and like what in her, like she's like singing while she's shopping, and like it's I think it's used as her theme tune at the end, but. I think if you did it that she's just someone that's always looking for fame and she goes down all these really low levels of fame. Yeah. Having a song for Europe qualification. And that that's why she latched on to the blonde bomber Julian Sands character. Was because he was a, as close to being as famous a person as she could shack up with. Yeah. That could work. But she also says, oh, back in the ring again. Like, she's done this all before. And it's like, well, that doesn't add up at all. Yeah. You can't possibly be a contemporary of Julian Sands, who is visibly like 15 years older than you, at least. Neil Fitzmaurice is visibly 15 to 20 years younger than Dave John's character. Yeah. 
you know, there's there's no way that Dave Johns and Jason Fleming, as much makeup as you might want to put on Jason Fleming, are contemporaries as well. They're not cast quite right. Ricky Grover, I can buy. Is it Ricky Grover? I don't know. No, it's not Ricky Grover. But this guy looks a lot like Ricky Grover, the big fella. You've seen him in lots of things. I love, I love, who's yeah. a hairdresser? Yeah, 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 yeah. The Gladiator. Yeah. I want to say something nice about this film, and I remember that this when I re- when I thought this when I was rewatching it, I realised I thought this the first time. Okay, the cinematography is fabulous. I think the guy who shot this film, oh. not the director, the guy behind the lighting and the camera quality and the picture and everything. I hope they get lots of work from the go on after this because this is like as better looking than like say. Um, at least as good looking in a film quality sense as any of the Edgar Wright films. It looks as good as uh, The World's End, for example. I like the juxtaposition of the Aston Martin and the JCBs rolling in. I like how that shot, with, like, with the low, looking at like the wheels and the tracks, as they like, roll in to this undefended, like, uh, to the undefended pub. You mentioned The Gladiator, and... I know we we, uh, we we our frequent listeners will know we we do go back and forth. Uh, we try not to, but whilst it's in my head, it's something that really really bothered me, and it undermined the whole film. They spend ages talking about how they need a Bob Dylan. They go all the way to his farm, kill his pig by accident, and like, oh, we've got this villain. Cool. Finally, we're set. Match one on the card, the curtain jerker. The gladiator's getting booze. It's like, well... Yeah, there's no... Yeah. I could understand... Yeah, yeah, like, if you can direct a crowd, which you can, because let's face it, it's all make-believe in this realm, and the crowd are extras, just get them to, like, cheer both and, like, do do face versus face. You've just, What you've done there is, like, piss away 20 minutes off yeah. the film. Well, that's the key thing as well. Like, the depiction of wrestling... And again, it's made that mistake that I also related to Ready to Rumble. There's no consistency in what wrestling is in this world. Are they saying that wrestling is... American wrestling was fake, which is what they say. That namby-pamby American stuff. And that the British stuff is a real sport. Because if you look at Stephen Graham's character, what he's not able to do when he's trying to finally get trained to be a wrestler is that he's not able to execute moves. Like, he's, like, he's Neil Fitzmaurice's character is supposed to teach him how to put a headlock on, but then he's always reversing the headlock to prevent him from putting it on. Yeah. And so he spends the whole time being worried and nervous that he's not going to wrestle properly, but it's not in the right way. It's not in the sense of him learning how to do the bumps right and the, and the moves right and everything. It's that he's getting beaten up all the time, yeah. thus implying that this is a real sport. British wrestling was a real sport. And the American stuff was the fake stuff. And they are applying all those wrestling moves and wrestling holds to the Chavi character, as you were saying, early on. And it's like he's taking a real beating. And these are the heroes of this film. A group of people yeah. beating up one person. Who's <laughs> a bit mouthy. I won't dispute that. But it's it's not proportionate to oh, the punishment. No. He had a slap coming. But not like a Boston crab. <laughs> many other different moves throughout at all so that's the problem again i think you've got to go by i guess it's always that problem that you go you're giving it the sports narrative but it's not a sport yeah and it's all planned out ahead of time when we talk about fighting with my family we'll have to bring that up as well 
and how it's ultimately a problem within the dynamics of how you tell a traditional story. The idea of it is supposed to be that the brother, the, the father and son come together to work against the heel, but the father and son are on good terms at the start of the match. They've healed their rift like half an hour ago. Yeah. So what does it mean for them to work together now? Well, that's where it gets a bit panto, the end of the film. It's like when we all live happily, happily ever after. There was like a, a very small percent, like percentage of me when those uh, beautifully shot JCBs were rolling in. Where I thought, are they going to like knock down the pub and they'll realise that the pub was there inside them all along and they'll just have a different building. I honestly thought it w- might go that way. You know one thing I also thought as well, because they knocked down the shrine to the Ginger Storm. But the other thing that always bothered me about the Ginger Storm is his shrine is far too many lit candles. <laughs> uh, do you know what? There's another thing. I thought it was going to be a case of those lit candles. When he puts the box down and says to Ginger, you're home now, I'm like, he's going to knock one over on the way out. The pub's going to burn down. And that's yeah, how they're, they're going to have to like rescue it. it. Like, pay for the repairs. And like, because that would have worked because the brewer would have gone, well, it's not financially justifiable to rebuild the pub. Uh, and then it, the argument is, well, this is what it means to it. You could have had that story with Stephen Graham being like a clumsy tart. And it would have probably had more conflicts between him and the wrestlers. But then they have to learn that it's not about being the most physically adept person in the world. It's about being able to get across an emotional connection with the audience. They don't do that. The wrestling show feels very anticlimactic. And also, why is it booked as a gauntlet match? (laughs) I knew knew that would bother you. (laughs) Slash every ECW mid-card time filler in their pay-per-views where suddenly Nova and Chris Chetty come out and then yep. Simon Diamond comes out and then loads of other people come out and then finally New Jack comes out and beats the shit out of everyone with a bin full of weapons. That was how it was being booked. And yep. like you say, there's no clear heel or face dynamics. You don't understand why the guys coming out, some are getting cheered and some are getting booed. It just, I mean, I guess you could say, well, when they were last on screen, they were being cheered and they were being booed. Or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that would kind of work. Possibly if the dynamic of the crowd was older. Well, that is also something that will be a recurring issue in pretty much every depiction of wrestling, including the wrestler. They never get wrestling crowds right because they always have them moving like they're in a video game. They're in constant motion and reacting to everything at the same pitch. The only match I know that was ever truly like that was the Kenta Kabashi versus Samoa Joe match in Ring of Honor. And maybe Stone Cold Steve Austin against The Rock at WrestleMania 17. Even some of the greatest matches of all time, they have their lulls and their periods where the crowd are allowed to sit down and just enjoy it. But they don't think because they see wrestling as this interactive pantomime. Well, pantomime is not two hours of he's behind you. No. But they have to have, they feel like we're paying these extras. They better bloody do something. Yeah, I mean, uh, you can't get like one guy just dressed as Superman just trying to make it all about him. Or, you know, the guy in the green smiley face shirt. <sighs> That's not what wrestling... Like, we've, all had, we've, all been, we've all seen piss break matches. We've all, you know, gone for a piss break. And that could have been a great thing that at the start of the match that Stephen Graham does, the crowd is sort of sitting on their hands. Like, it's the first time they're not really enjoying the show. Yeah. But then he learns how to do it. Like, you could have the heel wrestler actually be whispering into his ear about things he can do to get the crowd on his side. He's like... Put your head up. Look to the crowd. 
give me something more. Also, know? the heel wrestler. Why is it they're afraid of it? I guess it's meant to be that he... because it, that, that they they tell all these like stories, but then they interact with him like. I wonder. If, yeah. After like, oh, they sn- oh, he snuck up on us. They interact with him like he's fine. He he brings him a lovely cup of tea. He's he's miffed because obviously they accidentally killed his pig, but. There's no, like, real reason on screen to fear him. It's all heavily implied. But then they imply it so much, and then you see not that. They should have made him Les Kellett, essentially. The idea that, to the general public, he's this really lovable guy, and to every wrestler in the know, he's the most sadistic, evil bastard in the world. And then you could have had some real fun with it. Yeah. But yeah, like you say, he's the scary heel, but almost immediately, oh, I'm not that really that scary. Yeah. I mean, I'll point a gun at you, but now nah, I want to get back into wrestling just like the rest of you. Again, it's like not... Mm. They don't... He doesn't know how to pit... Like, the, a Hollywood script writing, you know, script doctor would just rip out everything and start again. He'd yeah. He'd say, okay, I'm going to take 12 of these 30 characters that you've got... Build it around those. Everyone else can be a little eccentric in the background, essentially like a background player. It would be like in Fighting With My Family, like there's one scene where Nick Frost chats to a wrestler that's in like a big Union Jack leotard. That's basically the only scene that those characters get to say anything. But instead they tried, like I said, they tried to give each of these characters some sort of internal arc, some sort of story. And sometimes they'll double up and have two characters where one character would do, like Sue Johnston and the woman with the coloured rim, coloured frame glasses. That should have been one character. Yes. There's no way you needed those to be two yeah. characters. And, like, the love interest between the promoter and, um, oh, what's her name? The cafe owner. Zulu Dawn, yeah. I mean, you could make a point about, well, you got that na- she got that name in the 60s, and so he can't. Like I said, I'll applaud it for its multiculturalism, its open-mindedness, and the idea of that sense of a community, and they don't mind whatever their people are, what they look like, or whatever. As long as there's only one of each of them, we don't want the numbers to increase beyond that. This is always the sense I've always had with those sort of communities and films, you know. (laughs) We got the one lad, he was alright, but the rest of them that we don't know... We don't want to know. Well, it's like it's like if you if you contribute to it, if you're if you're like willing to like be part of this collective, then I think they're fine with you. It, certainly in this film, that's that's the impression they give. Like I said, there's some there's some political ideology behind it. That 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 moment, like I said at the start, where suddenly they slam great into the Britain, and it's in red, white, and blue. I was like, ah, oh, I misremember this. <laughs> this frames it very differently. <laughs> But it's not. A, it's not a bad film. It's not a. It's not a good film. Always got enough ideas and concepts and passion behind it that you want it so badly to be. Good. Yeah. Like when I watched it, I was like, I couldn't do this for best of worst of British, my podcast about bad British movies. Because to be honest, there are probably films that I've covered for Bob that are better than this insofar as they're more entertaining. Yeah. But there's nothing. There's there's nothing I could have fun. I wouldn't have fun for an hour mocking this film and laughing at it. You know. It's not. It's not to be laughed at. It's to be kind of like, oh, you gave it a try, but you, you know. Yeah, there's 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 comedic moments in it. I I like laughed a few times. It's not that the comedy's poorly executed. It's just that it's one of like eight different things happening in the space of a few minutes. Yeah, it's like if Cody Rhodes booked a movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think I think you've nailed it there. I'm trying. I'm trying to see if there's any way I can pick, pick fault in that. What you've just said there, Lorcan. I cannot. Uh, a couple of other loose things. Enjoyed the opening montage at the start with the World of Sport. They even covered. They even showed clips of one of the matches that we discussed. The uh, Leon Aras Les Kellett match. There are a few uh, moments from that. Yes. It's funny now that easy has become the default chant of British wrestling. It's like the it's like ah, this is awesome, mm. or or what? Yeah. But it's like easy was supposed to relate specifically to Big Daddy not having any trouble. But it's like, hey, it's a wrestling show, so everyone starts chanting easy right at the start. Yeah, it's a bit that that's weird. I think his performance, Stephen Frost, is it Stephen Frost or Stephen First, the bloke from all the Orange ads. The 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 promoter yeah. the, the promoter slash the promoter uh, agent his was my least favorite performance in the whole film. As I said, he was like in a comedy and he tonally was all over the place compared to even compared to Stephen Tomlinson. I thought he was just. I was gonna say like because you picked but up Tomlinson's, Tomlinson's like on his own tone. his own little island, whereas he's interacting with the rest of the ensemble. Are you saying he's in the mm, Cody yeah. version? And as you were saying, he's kind of seems like the villain, but then he's not. But he doesn't change in any way, shape, or form, except he sees some money in it. But I guess that's kind of the point, as well. Yeah. Um. And it's so so scattershot. And the final, like, the pub's coming down, and then Cersei Lannister turns up. No, it's not. There we go. That's the end of this. I do wonder: was she already cast in Fighting with My Family when she got cast in this? Because it was like. Why is she in two wrestling shows in a row? Yeah. And also, she gets tickets to the wrestling, but then doesn't go to the wrestling. Oh, we don't, oh, we don't see her at the wrestling. Well, we assume... I guess not. That's true. Uh, but then you, you should have cut... I, well, that was my joke. When I did the... Um, when I did my review of this on my Instagram account, and I always do a joke about what I rated it out, and I gave it a 4 out of 10, which I think is being fairly <laughs> generous, to be honest. Was that was that a Bret Hart Triple H reference? Can I ask? No, no, no. I don't even know that. Did Bret say Triple H is four out of ten? Yeah, Bret once. It's one of the like famous. It gets brought up a lot that he said was it Triple H was a four out of ten wrestler or the Undertaker versus Triple H at WrestleMania was a four out of ten match. One or other. I can't remember which. Triple H isn't a four out of ten wrestler. He's not a ten out of ten wrestler either, except for maybe two thousand. But anyway. Uh, my my rating what and I always like do it out of a stupid thing out of ten to point out how fundamentally silly I find ratings anyway. Uh, I said four. Don't tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> what having already we've already told them several times. But Jesus, don't tell them again. <laughs> four allotted hours that they were able to afford. I've forgotten the name now. Cersei Lannister. What's her real name? I should be. I'm ter- I used to be brilliant at this, and I'm not anymore. I'm old. But anyway. Four hours that they could afford Cersei Lannister out of ten. <laughs> they did not have her for more than one day for that film. Well, you know, game was Game of Thrones still shooting in 2018? Yeah, 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 it was, yeah. yeah. And they even said Winters is coming. I was like, oh, clever. Oh, yeah. Um, did you spot... Lena Headey. Lena Headey, there we go. Headey. Um, did you spot the little cameo right at the end? Well, I spotted one of them. I don't know who the other one was. I didn't know. Rollerball Rocco was one of the two scouts that turn up at the end. Oh, was he the <sighs> smaller was... guy with the white hair? No, I... you know what? I was too distracted by Handlebar McGee next to yeah. him. Yeah, I couldn't tell who he was. I wasn't sure. I was like, if he's someone in the wrestling business, I don't, I don't know him. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, so yeah, it's just 
this should have been a sitcom, I think. And then we could have had enough time for, you know, Guz Khan and... Again, like, Guz Khan and uh, Scroobius Pip should have been one character. Yeah. Why, why were they two characters? And I think that the, well, the director well, was too they, in they love with everyone. Of... He was like, I've got to give, I've got to give Neil Fitzmaurice his scene. It's like yeah. getting rid of Bill Murray in Stripes, you know? We've got to give him his scene. And, and it's not good, and some of them go on for too long, like this podcast, in more ways than one. It's gone <laughs> on for too long. <laughs> So it's not it's not one that I'd recommend to people. It's not, yeah, it's not awful. The only... have, it on, have it on in the background if you're doing your ironing or something. I don't know. The only defense I'd give uh, the Guz and Scroobius characters being separate is they, they bounce off each other a yeah. little bit more than um, the, the, I, I... the two in the, the, two in the motor, motor bike and the sidecar. Well, they don't. They well, they are you, the same person. Yeah, but then you make them just Max and Paddy. And you don't bother giving them their. They you leave them in their own little world in and of itself. Oh, we don't need to put a caravan in this movie. There was already one. <laughs> I don't know. Is there much more you want to add? It's not. It's just. It's just. It's a mess. It's like you say. Like you say, you go from A to C, and there's no B. It's like when the two, like the love triangle, is paid off. There's no reason we're given why Julian Sands pick picks one over the other. And why he says it like uh, he says it out of the blue? Yeah, yeah. Unless, unless he's swept up with all the emotion of the moment, maybe. But convey that a bit more. Yeah, obviously, I think what it should be is that she's in love with him, whereas Jill Halfpenny's in love with the lifestyle that he she thinks he can provide him yeah. with his minuscule amount of fame. But they don't do that. There's no implication that he's miserable in the relationship, other than he just feels hapless in all of it. Yeah, you know. But it's just is well, yeah. Just everyone. Everyone tried, but collectively it just didn't come together. And it's and it is a shame because this is clearly something that's taken over a decade of this man's life. What's fascinating is looking at his IMDb. Do you know what one of the only other credits he has is? No. He co-wrote with Madonna her first film. Okay. She directed, and it's not We. It's a film that was so bad it didn't even get a regular release after it was made. Wow. Yeah. But he also has like additional crew uh, on like a couple of Guy Ritchie things, so I guess he's in the Guy Ritchie collective Verse. sphere. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so good luck to him. He went. He went on to direct a Noel Gallagher music video, and I think Noel Gallagher. There's a Noel Gallagher song in the end credits. So he's a, he's a man with connections, mm. but not necessarily a man with that much talent. <laughs> Yeah, and I was thinking, I always feel sorry because it probably will always be forgotten compared to fighting with my family, which we should do as another Silver Screen Vision, but let's not make it the very next Silver Screen Vision episode. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one last thing, I suppose. One of the things I would always say is like, don't rate it out of, don't rate the movie out of 10, but rate how you feel wrestling is depicted out of 10. Like, how satisfied are you with the depiction of wrestling in the film? Oh, uh... I'll go, so, for you cannot kill David Arquette. I would go retrospectively either six or seven because it made up stuff, but when it got into it, there were some really cool bits in it. I think that's fair. I will go if one of us goes six, the other one goes seven. I'll go seven. I'll be a more right. generous bastard than six. you there. Yeah, <laughs> and for what like a panther, I think I might go four again, like I did with the film. Four or five because it loves wrestling more than more than I think. You cannot kill David Arquette does necessarily. Mm. But I don't think it gets it right. Yeah, yeah, four, four. Yeah. So, you got any ideas for ones you want to cover in future Silver Screen Visions? Obviously, we'll take suggestions from you when we give you the social media uh, uh, contacts. By you, I mean the general listener. 
Uh, I want to do a three-hour episode on the Batista appearance in <laughs> No, no, no. Batista uh, appearance in what, sorry? In Neighbours. Sorry, I was He's in Neighbours? For a hot second. Well, I definitely want to do the Hacksaw Jim Duggan appearance in Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah, okay, that's fine. Uh, Actually, Glow. I was thinking about one thing. I was just went down a YouTube wormhole. And it'd be quite interesting also to do the depiction of wrestlers in just everyday TV shows. Like, it might be fun to do stuff about, like, whenever wrestlers would appear on Saturday morning kids' TV shows. Yeah. Like, Randy Savage appeared on Going Live once, and you could tell that Sarah Green did not care for him. I swear The Undertaker was on Live and Kicking once. I know that Edge did... He didn't do SMTV. He did the thing that followed up SMTV. Oh, what was that called? I don't know. I wasn't watching after that point. No Cat yeah. Dealy. No, no use for me. <laughs> as my as my earlier references to my usual daily activities would suggest. And <laughs> so, if he ever sees Cat Dealy in Derby, uh, rest assured, Lorcan will end up being tagged. Cat Dealy. <laughs> you tried. You tried. I like, need to. Like the from, writer of this she film. Cat li- Dealy literally went to my secondary school. Not we weren't there at the same time, but she did. But anyway, we all love Kat Dealey. She smiles on my TV. Uh, but yeah, William Regal and Kurt Angle did do SMTV Live. I know that for certain. Oh, Austin yeah. was supposed to do it, but he backed out. I swear I saw Samoa Joe on the Jimmy Carr game show Distraction. Yes, you did mention that. The Rock and The Big Show were on an episode of The Big Breakfast. I remember that. With that, the big problem with that was that Johnny Vaughan kept listing all of his favourite wrestlers, and it turned out they weren't going to be on the show that they were doing. Oh, <laughs> oh Soccer AM's had some over the years. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Soccer AM had Stone Cold Steve Austin on. He had John Cena. John Cena got into a rap battle with Tubes. I remember <laughs> that. And uh, yeah, we're just we're just reading off names at this point. Oh, I know that Mick Foley was on because he went to he did Soccer AM before he did Glee Club, where I saw him do his live show. And I think he pulled out Dagenham and Redbridge off of his, you know, picking a team oh, yeah. to support. And someone called him out on that in the in the question and answer session, and everyone booed him out of the room. They didn't, <laughs> want, to, they didn't want to talk about football. But uh, and I also remember that uh, I remember that Stone Cold Steve Austin got the Bolton Wanderers, as he put it, when he pulled their name out. <laughs> and the only one I can remember is Seth Rogen did it once, and he got Born Mouth. Born Mouth. <laughs> I think I think Shawn Michaels got Blackburn, oh, okay. or Shawn Michaels was talking about Blackburn at least once. On it a... must have been for that. It can't have been that. Yeah, I was in Blackburn. I... Shawn I Michaels is one of those guys I've never been able to do yeah. an impression of. I don't know why, but like not even get. I know you don't think much of my Stone Cold, but you can get who I'm trying to do. Shawn Michaels, I don't think I would ever yeah. get it. He's kind of growly and gravelly, but not in a. I don't know. It's hard to do. Mm. Anyway, that's been we we really extended this end part far more, almost as if it's not been very well edited and <laughs> in the spirits of the film we just talked about, <laughs> this went on about ten to twenty minutes longer than it needed to. But Simon, if people want to get in touch with you to give you some suggestions for some other ones or send you some links for some random wrestler appearances, maybe like. Um, that was the one that started it for me. Macho Man Randy Savage and Hacksaw Jim Duggan appearing on Games Master. The soon-to-be-rebooted oh. Games Master. Ooh. Mm. 
I remember Hacksaw Jim Duggan was playing a game where there wasn't Hacksaw Jim Duggan as one of the characters. Anywho, people can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of separate plots that were being looked at at any particular scene in this film. My name's Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for assistant director. N for... Not used enough. Not used enough. Yeah, the director needed some assistance in this film. And he didn't get enough. But anyway, that's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox. If you put an gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. We will be returning to another match of the week for our next episode. And I did list the one we were going to do quite a while back. I mean, so much of a while back I've watched it and I'm going to have to rewatch it. Because I've forgotten some of it. But it's a future stars plus one match in this Chikara four-way elimination involving Jigsaw, Nick Jackson, flying solo for once, El Generico, whatever happened to him. I don't know. And a slimline, even younger looking, Golden Star Kota Ibushi. Ah. The DDT's King of Trios event at the old ECW arena. If that doesn't satiate the appetite, I don't know what will. You can find it on YouTube. Give it a watch before the episode. Don't bother with War Like a Panther. <coughs> but anyway, there is nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great time. Until the next time, the balcony is closed. <laughs>